Acts 2, verses 38-39. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The essence of our salvation in Jesus Christ, dear ones, is God's promise, not his commandment. Even though all his commandments are good and holy. The reason, the essence of the covenant of grace is God's promise as it applies to saving sinners is because none of us in our fallen sinful state can perfectly keep God's holy commandments. Not only was the first sin of Adam accounted as the sin of all his posterity, who descend from him by ordinary generation, whether man, woman, or child. But the corruption of Adam's nature, like a dreaded disease, has infected every child at the moment of conception. Therefore, even from conception, our babies are sinners in need of God's grace. Sinners who cannot keep God's holy law, and sinners who must be saved by God on the basis of his promise made and applied to unworthy sinners and not on the basis of man's ability to keep God's commandments. Dear ones, if we would understand the gracious nature of God's salvation, we must first see our own and our children's desperately needy condition before God from the very moment of conception. Now, in some churches, it is not uncommon to hear the phrase, the age of accountability. This false teaching asserts that a person is not accountable for his or her sin until he or she reaches an age of understanding of what sin is. That age, according to this heretical view, varies from person to person. But clearly, an infant in the womb, a baby just born, or a toddler are not, according to this man-centered teaching, accountable before God as a sinner, they would argue. However, God makes it exceedingly clear that we become accountable before God as sinners from the very moment of conception. In Psalm 51.5, we read the words of David. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Likewise, in Psalm 58.3, we read, The wicked are estranged from the womb, 
They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Dear ones, God's testimony in Scripture is more than sufficient to establish the sinfulness of us and our children at conception. But I also appeal to the universal testimony of experience, which is observable by all, namely that it is not only adults and older children that experience death, but rather infants, yea, children who are yet in their mother's womb that likewise fall under the sentence of death. God explains to us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is what? Death. Universal death among all human beings, including infants, is the result of universal sin among all human beings, including infants, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, verses 12 through 14. You can look that up. The only exception being Christ, who did not die for his own sin, but for the sin and sins of others. Thus, because the age of accountability for us and our children is at conception, We and our children, from the moment of conception, are sinners in need of a Savior. Again, let me say it. If we or our children are to be saved, we must all, without exception, we all must be saved by God's gracious promise, not by God's commandment. Salvation by commandment is expressed in the sentiment, I will do in order to be saved. I will do in order to be saved. This is the covenant of works. Paul declares in Galatians 3.10, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Cursed is everyone who doesn't perform every single jot and tittle in thought, word, and deed that the law requires. Whereas salvation by promise is expressed in the sentiment, He, that is the Lord Jesus, has done in order that I might be saved. He has done it all that I might be saved. This is the covenant of grace, wherein the Lord declares, I will be a God to them, and they shall be to me a people. Hebrews 8.10 Of course, we must trust in Christ and embrace God's promise as our own if we are to enjoy Christ's salvation. But saving faith, dear ones, is a gift freely bestowed on sinners wherein the sinner, knowing he cannot save himself from his own sin, looks outside of himself to Jesus Christ as his own Savior as he is freely offered in the gospel. You see, dear ones, the command, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, is no more the cause of salvation than the command, thou shalt not steal, is the cause of salvation. Both are commands. We could not even obey the command of God to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if God did not graciously give to us saving faith in accordance with this promise, I will give to them a new heart. I will give to them a new heart. 
Dear ones, Jesus Christ, from the beginning to the end, is the author and the finisher of our faith and of the faith of our children. And it's based upon a promise made in the covenant of grace. Our text for this Lord's Day is lodged within Peter's sermon to the Israelites who were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. My outline for today's sermon is in the form of two propositions and one conclusion. The two propositions are as follows. First proposition is those to whom God's promise is made ought to be baptized. Acts 2.38 The second proposition is this. God's promise is made to both adults and to children. Acts 2.39 Conclusion Therefore, both adults and children ought to be baptized. Let's look at the first proposition. Those to whom God's promise is made ought to to be baptized. Look with me at Acts 2.38 again. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Let me first just give some preliminary uh, background to the context of this passage as we before we look at uh, verse 38 itself. Acts chapter 2 details the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit of God in new covenant abundance, not only upon Jews, but upon Gentiles as well, converts um, uh, to, to the Lord who gathered on the day of Pentecost, not merely those who were of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but those who came into the faith by way of being proselytized, uh, who believed and trusted in the Lord, also gathered with uh, those uh, who were of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in this celebration, this day of Pentecost. This was, this pouring forth the Spirit of God was extraordinarily and miraculously evidenced Uh, by the Spirit of God in giving to the apostles the ability to speak in in other tongues or languages, in foreign languages which they had never learned. We see in Acts chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. The supernatural gift of speaking in these foreign languages also pointed like a two-edged Sword to the need for Israel to turn to Christ and repent of her own unbelief. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 21 and 22, there Paul is speaking about this gift of tongues. And he goes back to the Old Testament in Isaiah to quote a prophecy and to make it clear that when Uh, God sent those speaking other languages through the Babylonians who were to come upon Jerusalem that the Jews would know that this was a sign of God's judgment upon them for their unbelief as well as a time for them to turn to the Lord God as their only hope of salvation. 
And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 21 and 22, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. And yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. To unbelieving Jews, assigned to them. That again, God speaking to you by way of, of other languages and other tongues. And they are to take heed. God's judgment is soon to fall upon them. Just as with the Babylonians in the Old Testament, with the Romans in 70 AD, God's judgment is going to fall upon them. Now is the time of salvation. Turn to the Lord Jesus. That was another reason for the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit in that particular gift of speaking in tongues. Now, the response of the multitude in Jerusalem who heard God's praises being spoken in their own native language, uh, whatever it may have been, and there's a list of various uh, languages that uh, they heard this message spoken in here in Acts 2, their response to the, the outpouring of God's Spirit in speaking in other languages was, this question, what meaneth this in Acts 2.12? What meaneth this? What's this all about? To which question, Peter rises to the occasion and preaches a sermon that God blesses and 3,000 are added to the church in one day. You know, when we see this kind of pouring forth of the Spirit, though we look around us and we say, how will the Lord bring forth a millennial period when there is so, such rank unbelief, corruption, uh, delusion, uh, apostasy, backsliding. Uh, and how can this come about? And our faith is just stretched. But here we see in one day the Lord was brought salvation, brought into the church 3,000. The thrust of Peter's sermon is upon the person and work of Jesus Christ who just some 50 days earlier <clears throat> had been crucified at the instigation and with the full approval of the Jews. However, God takes his preached word and applies it to the hearts of those listening to such an extent that their consciences were pricked and they now ask the apostles this question in Acts 2.37. Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do now that this message has been preached about Christ to us? What shall we do? You see, dear ones, one of the divine purposes accomplished by God's spirit and faithful preaching is that of stirring up the conscience of man so that his heart is pricked. So that he sees his desperate need of Jesus Christ and is brought to the place wherein he sincerely asks, what shall I do now? Faithful preaching should make us neither comfortable nor complacent, neither self-righteous nor self-sufficient. Faithful preaching should challenge us to look at our sin and our need of Christ and to look to Christ for his mercy. To look to Christ for His grace. To look to Christ to grow 
and the grace and knowledge of Christ and to place no confidence in ourselves. Faithful preaching, dear ones, should assure the sinner that he or she is not excluded from the free offer to come to Christ for salvation. All are invited. All are offered the blessing of salvation as the gospel goes forth to all who hear it. That brings us to Acts 2.38, wherein Peter answers the question put to him, what shall we do? Look with me. Once again, Acts 2.38. This is the answer to that question. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Let's just look at uh, this verse and kind of tear it apart. Uh, look at the component parts of this of this verse and the message that Peter gives to those gathered there on the day of Pentecost. Repent. Repent specifically refers to the need of the Jews to acknowledge their sin. All of their sin, for sure. But in particular, their sin in having Christ crucified supremely. Peter commands the people to see that they are sinners in need of a Savior and in grief and sorrow over their sin to turn from it, to trust Christ as their only righteousness and hope of eternal life. Now, although faith is not specifically mentioned here in Acts 2.38, it is certainly implied, since the presence of the grace of repentance necessarily implies the presence of the grace of saving faith. Can't have repentance that leads to life without there being faith. For there cannot be, as I just said, a repentance into life where there is not yet a trusting in Christ alone for everlasting life. If you turn over a few chapters to Acts 13, verses 38 and 39, where the Apostle Paul is preaching a sermon likewise to those who were Jews in the dispersion, you will see the emphasis here in Paul. Paul and Peter are not contradicting one another, but Paul uses similar language with regard to remission of sins, but notice what he says with regard to remission of sins. In verse 38, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. And so here, to believe, to trust, is placed as that which leads to, to um, a justification and pardoning of our sins. Although turning in faith to Christ necessarily presupposes that no one knows or that one knows he is an undeserving sinner and cannot save himself or herself, repentance in its most complete sense, not in a narrow sense of simply us knowing that we're sinners, but repentance in its most complete sense also includes 
and endeavoring after new obedience. And for that reason, if we're talking about repentance in its most complete sense, we must say that faith comes first, that repentance that endeavors new obedience presupposes that one has already trusted in Christ. Because one can't endeavor new obedience to follow Christ. One cannot endeavor or say, I want to follow Christ and commit myself to Jesus Christ apart from union with Jesus Christ. But apart from that union, giving him those graces that are consistent with repentance. And so we're not justified by repentance. We're not justified by love. We're justified by faith alone because it is that grace in particular that says I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself and I look to Christ alone for my salvation. I embrace Christ as my only Savior. It's that grace that is that which is the instrument of our justification and the pardoning of our sin. Faith in Christ alone. Next, Peter states that each of them is to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, when it says in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is in the authority of Christ for the remission of sins. This is not the specific formula to be used in baptism. That is, I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ is not the formula to be used. It says be baptized in the name of Christ here, the name representing the authority. The formula for baptism is given by Christ in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is the formula that's to be used in baptism. Here, in the name of Christ, it's not the formula, but it's simply a way of saying that we are to be baptized in the authority of Jesus Christ. Notice also that Peter does not say that, that they are to be baptized in order that they might have remission of sins. But rather says, for the remission of sins. In other words, the word for emphasizes with a view to the remission of sins. That is, water baptism, according to Peter, is the outward sign which points to, which has a view to uh, the remission of sins through Christ. Water baptism no more forgives sin in the new covenant than circumcision forgave sin in the old covenant. They are both outward signs which point to the forgiveness that's offered in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 4, Paul teaches that Abraham was justified in the sight of a holy God before he was circumcised. He was justified by trusting in the Lord alone before he was circumcised. In Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit was given to Cornelius and those family members and friends that were gathered to hear the gospel uh, from the mouth of Peter 
before they were baptized. The Holy Spirit fell on them. They were converted. They trusted in Jesus Christ. And then, Peter says, who can forbid baptism? So they were converted first before they were baptized. At least those who were mature enough, old enough to believe, did embrace Christ and then they were baptized. As we'll see in just a a moment, that the promise is not made simply to those who can believe, to adults, but to you and to your children. We'll see in just a moment, which will be the second proposition. But for the time being, we'll just uh, uh, state that. In Acts 2.38, then Peter proclaims that those who repent and are baptized will enjoy the blessings of God's gracious Spirit in their lives. They'll receive the gift of the Spirit. Again, I emphasize that Peter is not laying out a specific chronological order according to which God bestows the Holy Spirit. In other words, repent, be baptized, then you receive the Holy Spirit. He is simply noting that those who repent and are baptized in the authority of Christ are also those upon whom God gives his promised Spirit. The baptism of which Peter here speaks, as I said earlier, is an outward sign pointing to the very promises made by God to these Jews. Namely, the promise of remission of sins and the promise of the Holy Spirit. Notice in Revelation 1.5, the language that is used there with regard to cleansing us of our sin. Revelation 1.5, speaking of this letter uh, that's written, uh, letter, uh, book of Revelation, says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. See, the whole idea of washing of our sins is the reason for the use of water in baptism because it is an outward sign that points to the spiritual washing that is necessary. The the outward washing, the outward application of water is not intended to be an end in itself but rather to point to our need of an internal washing and cleansing. Jesus unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins. That's why the Holy Spirit chooses to use that kind of language. Washing. So as to remind us of our baptism, the promise made to us in our baptism. Likewise, in 1 Peter 1-2, notice there the words that are used by the inspired writer. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament sprinkling where we find in various situations there was a sprinkling of of blood and takes that same language and applies it to Christ being the Lamb of God. His blood is sprinkled upon us. 
by which we are washed, by which we are cleansed. And so, again, pointing to not merely an outward an outward cleansing or sprinkling, but to an inward cleansing of the heart and the conscience by Jesus Christ. But that language, again, takes us back to the outward sign. As we see that the the Spirit, the, kind, the language that is used in the New Testament, that the Spirit is poured out upon. We find the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It also tells us, gives us the, by that way, the mode that ought to be used in baptism. Pouring or sprinkling uh, in baptism as well is the proper biblical mode of baptism. So don't forget our first proposition. Those to whom God's promise is made ought to be baptized. Is not God's promise of, of salvation made to as many as were commanded to be baptized? How many were commanded to be baptized? According to Acts 2.38, every one of you. Every one of you were, is is the extensiveness of those who are commanded to be baptized because the promise is made to them, to everyone. Thus the Lord on that day extended his promise of salvation through Peter to all the Jewish brethren that were gathered there, as well as those who were proselytes, as many as heard the message. The second proposition is this. The promise is made to adults and children. The promise is made to adults and children. Look at Acts 2.39. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as as many as the Lord our God shall call. That is, call by way of the offer of salvation through the gospel. I would simply have you note that the promise made in baptism is not only for adults, but for our children as well. Not that either adults or children are saved by their baptism, but rather that the sign of baptism points to the promise of salvation offered to all whom the Lord calls by his preached word. We need to pause briefly and to make a distinction between a promise made here and a promise received. A promise made and a promise received. The promise is made to all who hear the gospel and to all who receive baptism, which is, baptism is merely the visible gospel, as we've already noted, because baptism points to a cleansing of the heart, a cleansing of the conscience, a sprinkling by the blood of Christ, The promise emphasizes, the promise that is made emphasizes to all that salvation is not our work, but it's God's work. The promise to save sinners is not forced or manipulated from God, but rather is freely given by God. This promise to save sinners is not uh, one that Jesus Christ Uh, only died to secure the final end of salvation, but he paid for and secured the means by which we are saved, namely by faith. 
that grace of faith was also paid for by Christ. That is why the promise of salvation may be made to all who hear it. But only those who are sovereignly regenerated and therefore take hold of Jesus Christ by faith actually receive the blessings of the promise made in the preached gospel or in the visible gospel. So we must distinguish. The promise is made in the gospel when we apply baptism whether to adults or children, I don't know even in the case of adults uh, that everyone I have baptized as an adult actually was regenerated. They profess faith in Christ, but many people can profess faith in Christ and not actually be regenerated. And so there's a promise made to whomever baptism is administered, not only in the preached gospel, but also in the visible gospel of baptism. A promise is made, whether to adult or to a child. But it is only those who receive by faith the promise in whom the promise is fulfilled and realized. This is simply, dear ones, the same promise that's spoken of here in Acts 2.39 for the promises unto you and to your children. This is simply the same promise that was made to Abraham and to his seed 2,000 years before. In Genesis 17.7, there you'll recall the promise that was made freely to Abraham. Genesis 17.7 says, God speaking to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Now, that promise that was made to be a, a God, not only to Abraham, who could believe, but to his seed. Did that include the seed? Did that include infants? Well, we know it included infants because they were to be circumcised at eight days, when they were eight days old. The females being represented by the males, but they were to be or circumcised when they were eight days old. And so the seed here in view is not simply those children who are old enough to believe that are to whom the promise is made, to whom the promise is preached, but also to those who are only eight days old, yea, even those from their, their mother's womb have the promise made unto them. Again, it is not only the promise made unto them, as we'll see in just a moment, but it is the promise received by faith that realizes that blessing of salvation in the life of those to whom the promise is made. When it is suggested that in Acts 2.30, Nine that this 
refers only to older children who can make a profession of faith, our response is that there is no qualification made at all in the text as to the age of the children. The promise is unto you and to your children. If that's not your child, well, then the promise, we could say, is that the promise is not made to that child. But if that is your child, regardless of that child's age, the promise is made unto, I mean, as far as how young the child is, even from conception, it's not the fact that our our children do not become members of the visible church by virtue of their baptism. They are already members of the visible church by way of their identification with believing parents or parents who are members of the visible church and for that reason they are baptized. We don't baptize them to bring them into the visible church. We baptize them because they are already members of the visible church by way of their identification and by way of representation in the covenant by their believing parents. Now, as we said, who did the promise of God to Abraham include? It included infants. Uh, Is the covenant made with Abraham not uh, not, uh, also made with us as well in the new covenant? Well, yes, according to Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, the very same covenant of grace that was made with Abraham and his seed is the same covenant that is made with us as well in the new covenant. There's not two different covenants of grace. There's one covenant of grace that transcends the Old and the New Testament. In Galatians 3.14, notice what Paul says. Speaking to believers, uh, believing uh, those who are able to believe, mature enough to believe even now, Uh, in the new covenant age that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We who can believe. And so the promise of Abraham is not simply limited to those in the Old Testament but extends to those in, in the New Testament in the new covenant age as well. And so... We who believe are part of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of grace. Our children, like with Abraham, are brought into that covenant by representation, by way of our their identity with us. And therefore, as God commanded that circumcision should be administered not only to Abraham and to his seed, likewise baptism is to be administered to those who believe and to their children because the promise is to you and to your children. How would, just ask yourself this question, how would these Jews listening to Peter's sermon had understood a reference to children in the context of God's promise? Put yourselves, if you can, in in their shoes. For over 2,000 years, promise that was made they understood on the basis of Abraham to Abraham and his seed 
that the promise was made not only to Abraham who could believe, but to their children. And on the basis of that, they administered circumcision. So, when Peter says, therefore, in the new covenant, in preaching a sermon to you and to your children, is this promise made? How would they have understood that language? Well, again, they would not have limited and said, well, he must mean children who can believe. They didn't have that understanding of the covenant. They had an understanding of the covenant that was based upon the promise made to Abraham and that worked its way through the whole old covenant to that particular time that Peter now preaches the sermon. We have to look at the Bible as a whole and all that God had said up to that time as bearing witness to and explaining who the children are that are in view here to you and to your children. Of course, they would have understood Peter when he said in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, for the promises to you and to your children to have included their infants as well. Remember, the Lord Jesus made it clear that the promises of salvation may not only be made to infants, but that also the actual promises of salvation may be received by infants. You remember in Luke 18.15, parents brought their children to Christ. In Luke 18.15, he says, it's, the text says they were infants. And that he placed his hand upon them uh, comparing that with Mark 10:16, and he blessed them. Now, if, again, infants must believe first in order to receive outward signs, then what is all this about putting your hand upon, out, uh, Jesus putting his hand outwardly upon these children who are infants and blessing them? What's all that about? If they must be of such an age that they can exercise personal faith in Christ. Well, this is simply indicating because he goes on, the text goes on to say, Jesus says, of such, these little infants, of such is the kingdom of heaven. And dear ones, if the kingdom of heaven belongs to infants, then the sign of that kingdom belongs to infants as well, which is baptism in the new covenant. Now, the fact that uh, that promises can be made and received by infants is also demonstrated by the fact that David himself was the recipient of the promise of salvation. Not only made, but received the promise of salvation. And in, in his infancy, notice what is said in, in Psalm 22.9. David says, But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. Thou didst make me hope while I was upon my mother's breasts. So here, even in his infancy, the promise was applied to an infant. Not only made to an infant, but realized in the life of an infant. So God not only can make promises to our children, God, before they, before they come to the age of being able to 
to exercise that faith in Jesus Christ. He can cause them to be regenerated within their heart, born again in infancy. And we'll see in just a moment, even from the mother's womb. David's son that was conceived with Bathsheba was the recipient of the promise of salvation and it would appear received that promise not simply was made the promise but also that promise was realized in that child's life as we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 23. 2 Samuel 12:23 says this. You remember after the death of that child, David says this by way of testimony, and he said, "While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live?" Verse 23, "But now he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again?" I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Where was David going? What was David's anticipation where he would go at death? Well, being a believer would be that he would go to be with God in, in heaven. And he says, this child will not come back to me in this life, but I will go to be with that child after death. God had obviously, because David was a prophet, had given him assurance, an infallible assurance, knowledge that this child was, in fact, one of God's own. And David speaks. So our children can not only be given the promise, but also the promise realized in their life. Whenever God chooses to make that promise realized, he can do so by his sovereign grace. Jeremiah was apparently the recipient of the promise of salvation while yet in his mother's womb, according to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Notice there what is said. Before I formed thee, this is God speaking to Jeremiah, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Now, that's not just a casual knowledge, but I knew thee in the sense of I saved thee. I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. So, all of this was given to Jeremiah before coming from his mother's womb, before his birth. John the Baptist was the recipient, likewise, of the promise of salvation while yet in his mother's womb, as we find in Luke 1.15. Here is the prophecy given by the angel to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. How can one 
who is not regenerated be filled with the Holy Ghost? Again, an example that God is able not only to make promises to our children, but to see them realized as well, even from the womb if he so chooses to do. Thus we see, dear ones, back in Acts 2.39, that the promise of salvation is made to the children of parents who are within the visible church. For the promise is unto you and your children. And so we come then to the conclusion, therefore all children of believing parents ought to be baptized. For if the promise belongs to children, so does the sign of that promise, namely baptism. If the promise belongs to children, then an infants, then so does the sign of that promise, which is baptism. Dear ones, the baptism of our children is a time of great rejoicing in that we see the promise of salvation outwardly made to our children. This causes our hearts as parents to rejoice that God is making this promise to our children. Now, we as parents must use the ordained means of bringing our children to Jesus Christ. We must not see this as resting you know, upon our head as being our sole responsibility as if we can save our children but we must see that this is the ordained means putting children in the homes of believing parents. This is the way that God does bring our children to saving faith. It's through what we teach them and instruct them. The way we raise them in the scriptures and in the knowledge of Christ. The way we correct them and discipline them. and That this is not something that mommy and daddy simply enjoy doing, but this is the way God himself treats us because we belong to him. He chastens us because, we, because he loves us. So we, as parents, chasten you because we love you. And we ter- turn every one of these, these opportunities into an opportunity to present the gospel to our children. When we discipline our children so that this is a way... Continually, they're being exposed to the gospel of salvation. Dear ones, we must all become little, like little children if we are to enter the, the kingdom of God. That is, we must see our own helplessness and insufficiency to save ourselves and cast ourselves upon His sufficiency and His promise alone. We must, like an infant, just like a little child, cling. As a child, little child clings to to his mother or to his father. So we must likewise cling to Christ and drink freely the blessings of salvation. And this we pray not only for ourselves, but we pray for our children as well. The baptism of our children, dear ones, is not only a time of great rejoicing, but is also a very solemn occasion because the promises of God cannot be taken 
lightly either by us or by our children. We cannot treat the promises of God lightly that are made unto us and to our children. Our children must be taught to look upon their baptism joyously, but they must also be taught by us to look upon their baptism seriously. For a promise made by Christ to us in the preaching of the gospel or in our baptism only aggravates our sin of unbelief and not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our eternal salvation. There is a greater aggravation of sin, a greater degree of heinousness in the unbelief of those who have received baptism and have been baptized because the promise has been made to them in their baptism and they've not taken that promise seriously. Since the promise of God made to our children in baptism is one to be taken seriously, we must, as parents, pray for our children daily. We must teach them the gospel. We must train them in the ways of the Lord. We cannot look upon the baptism of our children as their ticket into heaven. Promises made by God to us and our children are to be received by faith and enjoyed by faith. Let us not be like that generation of Israel that wandered in the wilderness, that heard the gospel, but did not receive it by faith. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I conclude, let us not be like this generation. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. That is, those who wandered in the wilderness, that generation, the gospel was preached to them as well. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Dear ones, the promise is made to you today. The promise of salvation is made unto you. It is offered unto you. All of you within the sound of my voice, but if it is not mixed with faith, it is simply a promise that only aggravates your unbelief and will make that final day of judgment when we all stand before God will only make that, that judgment more severe in our case. And so, today, let us each one reach out with the hand of faith and embrace that offer 
of Christ that is made unto us. Mix the offer, the promise with faith. Let us stand together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee for the promise that is made unto us in our baptism and in the preaching of the Gospel. And we pray, Lord God, that now we will mix with that promise faith in Jesus Christ alone. And Lord, we pray that from the youngest of us to the oldest, that we would understand that, a, that the end of a promise made is not simply in baptism, but the end of a promise made is receiving that promise by faith in Christ alone. And that our baptism and the baptism of our children points to that very fact that Jesus Christ alone can save that Jesus Christ alone is our righteousness, that He alone can sprinkle and wash us from our sin. We pray, our Lord and our God, that Thou would give to us Thy grace as parents to be diligent. And though it is difficult to continue to work with our children at times as parents, and though at times, Lord, we may become as parents sinfully frustrated, and may throw up our, our hands and our arms because of how heavy this duty is and weighs upon us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us, O oh God, to, to continually remember that it is ultimately, though we are responsible as parents to lead our children to Christ as those parents brought their children to Christ in the days of Christ's ministry, that ultimately, however... We do not save our children. It is God and God alone that saves our children. And we cast ourselves and, and our children upon Thee. And we pray, Father, that Thou would make today the glory of Thy promise even more clear in our, in our minds that we, we are, Lord, not saved. We are not um, justified. We are not glorified on the basis of commandment, but, uh, but rather on the basis of promise. Promise fulfilled by Jesus Christ himself. And we reach out, O oh Lord, now and receive that promise made unto us and to our children. We ask, Lord, these things through Christ our Savior. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb 
at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.